this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is well with our soul, that is, if Jesus is our Savior. If you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to be looking to the Old Testament today. This topical message is from uh, going to be drawn, or coming right out of 2 Samuel, uh, which is one of the historical books of the Old Testament. 2 Samuel, we'll be looking at uh, the, a story that uh, may be familiar to some. Uh, some. Some of you might be actually getting some, uh, uh, some new history today as we un unpack uh, First and Second Samuel is Second uh, Samuel chapter uh, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Uh, if you're following along, you're going to end up having to do some of the reading for yourself. Uh, but if you'll look for our text, it is found on page 341. Uh, we'll be looking at Second Samuel chapter, chapter 17. But before I go there, I always want to draw your attention to the word cloud uh, that's before you. It's in the bulletin. Uh, it is an opportunity for you to remember why we're here. You could be a lot of different places. In fact, in the summertime, uh, we've spent time at the beach, and we've seen that beautiful sanctuary with the waves rolling in. Uh, there's a lot of things that remind us of how wonderful our God is. The heavens declare his glory. The earth shows his handiwork. It's pretty amazing. But today we're gathered in a sanctuary, and as we gather here, one of the things that we delight is we believe that God wants us to come together and to to be in his company, to come and to meet with God. When you come, how do you know God? Do we just pull our ignorance? Do all of us just come together and say, well, let's think about a God that would make me happy or a God that would pat me on the back, a God that will smile at me. There's a lot of, a lot of people today who don't know God, and so they generate their own gods. And that's one of the reasons why the Ten Commandments starts out as it does. There should be no other God. There should be no other entity that directs you besides him. Only our heavenly father, our maker. Now, when we, when, we, uh, when we look at the word cloud, you can see that the Bible is the only rule to direct us how we can glorify and enjoy God. It's in the Bible that we have the words of eternal life, but we also have an understanding of what we're to believe about God and what duty God expects from us. And so we're a Bible-believing church, and when you're into the Bible, you're always going to find the gospel of Jesus Christ. From the beginning of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation's end, you're going to find Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that character. There's no other name given among men whereby we can be saved, and that's why the gospel is so important. All the other things that are in the word cloud, whether we talk about reformed or covenantal, whether we talk about caring or friendly, all of these things are because the Bible is true and because God is in the business of saving sinners. And when he does that, things are different. So let us now turn in our Bibles to, uh, as I said, to 2 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, and if you'll reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant word, we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of this particular text. Uh, and I want to introduce you to the story. This is God's inerrant, infallible word. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. Now, in order for you to stay along with me, I just want to be almost like a good teacher and show you that there's some interesting characters here. Uh, if you haven't met Ahithoph Ahithophel before, uh, I haven't found anybody that bears his name. Uh, let me tell you, if you knew about Ahithophel, uh, he... He gave such good counsel. Some people compare him to 
like a walking Bible. Uh, I mean, he was a sharp character, Ahithophel. Okay, now, Ahithophel is a character. The next one is Absalom. Absalom. Have any of you named your kids Absalom? I tell you, if you did, you might have the, the most handsome little, little guy. Or the most, you know, because Absalom was one of those, uh, those characters in the Bible that, that it, he would have won the beauty contest. I mean, this guy, he, he would have been on the, uh, he would have won the GQ thing, man of the year. Okay, Absalom is a, is a great character. And if you don't know anything else about him besides his looks, I, I do want you to know that he actually is David's son. He's, he has some uh, heritage uh, of this godly line from King David. Now, so Ahithophel is speaking to Absalom. Now, this is not a good season in David's life because uh, uh, Absalom has, has already usurped. Uh, he's become the king. Uh, and, and Ahithophel now is giving counsel to Absalom. And, and so, so the counsel comes. Uh, the counselor speaks to the king and he says, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. He doesn't say King David anymore because they just dethroned him. They just had a great conspiracy to take down David. And verse 2, I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee from David. And I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back as to you as a bride coming home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will then be at peace and the advice from Ahithophel seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and even in the eyes of all the elders of Israel. That's the first section that you see in this passage. Ahithophel has a plan. Now, if you look a little bit further, the next verse says, Then Absalom said, Call Hushai, the archite, also, and let us hear what he has to say. This is a surprise. In verse 6, and when Hushai came to Absalom, by the way, Hushai is also a counselor. He's a, he's a, a, a strategist. Uh, he would be somebody that would be in the cabinet if we were to liken it to the United States. This guy, uh, Hushai, was previous, in the previous administration with, with David. Uh, he, Hushai was one of David's good counselors. Now, Hushai is speaking to Absalom. I'll tell you the rest of the story in a moment. But Hushai comes to Absalom, and Absalom says to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? Now, the way that the writer here says, Hey, you remember all that counsel that Absalom got? Well, he shared it with, with Hushai. And so uh, he says, Hushai, is this good? And if it's not, then you speak and tell us. Verse 7, then Hushai speaks to Absalom, and he says, The time... This time, the counsel that Ahithophel has given you is not good. Hushai continued, and he said in verse 8, You know that your father and his mighty men are men, they are, and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged. They're like a bear robbed of her cubs in the fields. And besides, your father, he's an expert in war. And you can just trigger David versus Goliath. You can trigger all these great thoughts going in your mind. And, and he says, besides, your father David is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with his people. In other words, he's too smart for this. Verse 9, behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. 
And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Verse 10. When that news gets out, then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. And all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from, from up north in Dan all the way down to the south in Beersheba as the sand of the sea for multitude and that you go and battle in person. Verse 12. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is not or where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falling on the ground and of him and all his men with him not one will be left. If he were to withdraw into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes so that the city, to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. Whew. Verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Did you know something? I didn't finish reading. Let me finish reading. For the Lord, for Yahweh, had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord Yahweh might bring harm upon Absalom. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll take this, this message today and... Apply it to our hearts that we might truly, as Ephesians 4 talks about, be equipped to be able to live and move and have our being here in 2022. We pray that you will equip the saints to be able to do the work of the ministry that you have already ordained that they should be doing, that we, everyone in this room, should be doing, Ephesians 2.10. We ask for the Spirit of God to direct our steps and to give us the discernment so that we can see who is controlling the narrative that we're listening to. In Jesus' name, amen. Those of you that have a little bit of age on you, you'll know who Paul Harvey is. He captured everyone's attention on the radio when he would say, and now the rest of the story. Everybody would pay attention to the rest of the story because the details that he would add to the narrative would help you, the audience, to figure it out. And when you figured it out, then it was satisfying. You may not have liked everything, but now you understood how the puzzle fit together. There's a fellow named Dr. Erwin Lutzer. I was first exposed to him when I got his book as a youngster. It was called Exploding the Myths That Could Destroy America. Uh, and this particular book uh, was an easy read, big writing and all that kind of stuff. But it was a pastor. Uh, he is... Um, um, He's got all of his degrees and all that, but he is at, at Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. He's written many books. Uh, the latest one that he came out with is We Will Not Be Silenced. And I want to encourage you to get that, pick it up and read it. I'm trying to do that with my whole family. Uh, we want to have a discussion group over it. Uh, but in, in, the, in, in Lutzer's book, uh, he ends up tackling some of the contemporary issues. And he's asking Christians to not be silenced. 
in, a, in chapter 2, which is where I'm picking up today with this topical message, uh, he ends up titling it, Rewrite the Past to Control the Future. And he goes on to say it like this, Who controls the past controls the future, said George Ordwell in his book. Uh, he wrote this during the rise of communism, pointing out that if you can rewrite even and erase the past, then you can help people forget who they are and they can forge a new future. In the book 1984, Orwell described the ministry of truth, whose duty it was to make the past consistent with the present. Winston Smith's assignment was to make the truth look like a lie and vice versa. If Big Brother made a prediction that didn't come, come to pass, then the past would just simply have to be rewritten to harmonize with whatever Big Brother had said. Revising history lies at the heart of all social and political revolutions. And he goes on and he challenges people. Now, when I end up coming to the, to the pulpit here today, my goal is not to read a book to you. It is to open up God's book to you. And so the text that we're looking at today is to be able to help you to see who is controlling the narrative and to be able to understand how these things are not new. In fact, Solomon said it so well, there's nothing new under the sun. As I've been, re been, been reading these kind of things, uh, the challenge is for us to not be deceived by the voices that are all around us, especially the many secular agendas that are being pushed and even what some parents are rebelling against, even in the public education. They're telling you certain things that are completely different from our biblical world and life view. And they're actually saying they're not doing it, and yet we're watching many of the children buying right into it. The, uh, the, some of the agendas that are being advanced are so subtle, and some are not. As we looked in Romans 13 last week, God's grace has been given to mankind so that we would have order, so that we wouldn't have to be living in chaos, so we wouldn't have to have doublespeak, or we wouldn't have to have a ministry of truth that's trying to erase things so that only you only hear one message. On the front of the bulletin today, you have that picture of people as if they're uh, puppets being, uh, men, uh, being led by somebody else's hand. Is that a bad picture? Would you like to be the person down at the bottom? Would you like to be the hands up at the top? It's kind of interesting. The reason why this looks so bad is because of the strings that are connected. You see, because the strings would tell you that you're not free anymore. That somebody else is pulling the strings and you're powerless to stop that. Today's message ends up bringing some of that to light. You know, if you look through scripture, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's about spiritual wickedness, as it says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 6. And Satan is the master at deceiving. He's the master at the ministry of truth. He's the one who tries to change things or to challenge you to come up with alternatives to the way God has set it up. In today's text in 2 Samuel, we, we will see how the agenda of personal satisfaction led to the pain and unrest in others. It's almost like I said, there's nothing new under the sun. Some people are going to do what they think is right in their own eyes, and it has a negative effect on others. You will also see that the new agenda is in reaction and it promotes even more devastation and even humiliation. When, when you try to do things and then you react to those things, oftentimes you just make things more mucky, more difficult. 
it's almost like trying to get out of quicksand. You end up getting deeper into it. Everyone seems to seek some control of the story. How is it told? What are the facts that are included? And what is left out? You heard me in the story today. I was telling you about Ahithophel and Absalom, but I didn't read you the rest of the story. And boy, it changes everything if you can take out the last part of chapter 14, or verse 14. As we prepare for communion and at the table that God has prepared for us, uh, for believers that is, may God help us to see how he is in control of the narrative. And once you recognize that, my prayer is that you'll want to run to the table and you'll realize that he doesn't have to use strings to make you want to do that. The, the sermon comes in three parts. Uh, it is going to be the abuse of freedom. Secondly, the agony of defeat. And the third is going to be the agents of change. Uh, the first two points I quickly want to highlight, but you need to have them in order to have the context for the third. The agents of change, how it really works together. The first thing I want to talk about is from 2 Samuel chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles open or sometimes the text might be above, but I want to talk about the abuse of freedom or better said, maybe the abuse of grace. You see, when, you, when we're entering into this story, uh, we find all kinds of narratives going on. People are living during this time when David is king, and people are enjoying life. They can go here, they can go there, they can do this, they can do that. They have freedom. Okay, but as, as Galatians chapter 5 says, stand fast in the freedom that you have in Christ. Well, these people, they just stood fast, they stood fast not in the freedom in Christ, but in their own freedom, I call it, of personal satisfaction. And they abused it. And let me just touch on it a little bit, and you can have to read it at home, but there's the story not only of Absalom, but of Absalom's brother Amnon. And uh, if you look a little further into the story, you're going to find out that there's another character named Joab, who is a nephew of David. He was David's uh, military genius. Uh, and then there's also uh, some other things that come into play. But let me just tell you how the freedom was abused. David is king. And life is good. The people, you know, they were living they were working hard. They were making their money. They worked their crops. They did whatever they had to do. David was in charge. And the people had time. And uh, they figured out how they wanted to make their lives better. They had freedom. David had been a gracious parent. He had basically taken the philosophy that boys will be boys and girls will be girls. And they could almost do whatever they wanted to do. Because, by the way, David had done a lot of that. Do you know how many wives David had? Do you know how many children he had? Well, he had quite a few at the beginning. But then, of course, the family ended up being harvested of some of these, the abuses of freedom, the abuses of grace. And what you find out is that some of these family members started to compete. Some of these family members had their own agendas. They wanted more. They wanted personal satisfaction. And the one that really saddened us all is Amnon. And many of you don't know much about Amnon. He was in, he was in line to be the next king. He was, one of the, he was the oldest one. And Amnon... Uh, being that he was the oldest, he was kind of privileged, and he, of course, thought he could do whatever he wanted to do. 
David was not a really hands-on dad. He didn't tell them they couldn't do that much. He did have a couple of parameters, but people basically, uh, they were kids. The thing, though, the thing that would make Amnon happy, he got in his head or from his heart, we don't really know exactly where this sexual desire came, but he saw this half-sister of his named Tamar, and she was good-looking. You can just imagine, you know, Amnon... And because he had the abuse of grace, he ends up finding and manipulating. He fakes a sickness. What a conspiracy. And he says, oh, what I'd like is to have my sister to come over and bring me some chicken noodle soup. It'll be good for my soul. And if you read the rest of the story in chapter 13, you're going to find out that when she brought him chicken soup, uh, he took advantage of her. It's too X-rated to even talk about it in public. And she's yelling out, don't defile, don't do it, and Amnon did it. Now, if I was Paul Harvey to tell you the rest of the story, Tamar, she was good looking, that's for sure, but she had a handsome brother. Do you know who he was? Absalom. Absalom was also a son of David, and, and his big brother, which was Amnon, had now defiled his sister. And you know what happened? He couldn't go on with life. He was so ticked that his brother was getting away with it that he had to have personal satisfaction by having another conspiracy. I am going to do something to get, get even. I'm going to make that person pay. And if you read the rest of the story... In chapter 13, you're going to find that Absalom, he had a party planned. And he even got David's permission to let Amnon come, and they were drinking it up. Be careful if you drink too much alcohol. That was the last thing that Amnon did. Because when he was wasted, then his, then his, then, then his brother Absalom ends up having a coup. And they ended up killing him right then and there. And of course, all the rest of David's family, all the other children, they say, oh, no, no, no. They feel like we don't know the extent of this conspiracy. We don't know how bad this is going to reach out. And I'm telling you, if you were a part of David's household, these were not the best of times. From sexual desires of Amnon to revenge of Absalom, life is miserable. And yet David's over there in his palace. And David's living life pretty good. You know, he gets up each day and he's king. He gets up the next day and he's king. And he gets up the next day and he's king. He's got a harem. He's got concubines. He's got everything you would ever think. And he's got God. Right? This mess, in the unfolding of it, I called it the, uh, the abuse of freedom, is that they weren't walking with the Lord. These people were doing what was right in their own eyes. The, the story of David having to punish his son was really hard for David to do. And he took Absalom and he banished him away. He didn't kill him because it was his son. And he extended even more grace on Absalom. Even though there was a murder in the household and fear had been given. Now Joab was another character, as I said, was a nephew of David. And Joab was a smart guy. He wasn't... A, I don't know if he had a big heart, but he definitely had a big mind. He was a great strategic person. Joab looks at this and he sees David and David's heart is broken. There's so much unrest in the family. 
Joab ends up coming up with a plan. And Joab ends up finding this pretty girl. She's dressed in, in rags. And he says, can you have an audience with the king? This is what you need to tell the king. Can you see how Joab was controlling the narrative? And if you open up your Bibles and read it in chapter 15, you're going to find that, uh, that David was moved by the storyline. And he ends up being swayed to say, okay, Absalom can come back. So the guy that had killed the one that was heir to the throne is now coming back, but he's not, they, they're living in, in close exile. <laughs> David, David is still in his palace and, and uh, Absalom is still around and uh, they're just coexisting. Now, the story goes on a little further that uh, David tried to be gracious again and give, give Absalom some grace to be able to participate again and not be left out. And then you find out that Absalom says, he doesn't say thank, thank you. Absalom comes up with another plan. And Absalom's last plan that you read about in chapter 15 is that he is going to replace his father. How dare his dad exile him for a few years? His dad is too old. He's too senile. He just is no longer in the in crowd. And Absalom, of course, still has his good looks. He'd be on the front of GQ. I mean, Absalom is a smart character, and he figures out a plan. And so you can see who is controlling the narrative. Everybody that has an agenda. And when you start to realize this, this is why it is so dangerous, the abuse of freedom. The second point I want to bring up after you've got a little exposure to this is the agony of defeat. The narratives that have unfolded are now the narrative of social humiliation. If you spend a little time in the text from chapter 15 up to chapter 17, you're going to find that King David is no longer a happy camper in his palace. Everything is now unraveling. It's, it's almost like I've, I've, I've been saying all along when you, when you think about what's going on in our culture and our country all over the place, you want to hit the reset button. Lord, take away all these troubles. Let's just have an easy button and start over. David would wish that. But David is realizing that things are moving out of his control. There are conspiracies and there are plans. There are uh, People with strings attached. And when they're moving their fingers, other people are moving. And there's other folks going into place. If you look at, at the diabolical nature of this, Absalom it doesn't just have it in his head. He starts to implement his plan. He sends out spies to all the different parts of the country. He ends up standing there in the, in the uh, gate, the court. Uh, and I think I had it like this. It was his appearance, his activity, and his agenda. If you looked at it there, uh, it was pretty fascinating to see what... What, uh, what was going on. And David was the recipient of that plan. The narrative had unfolded that David was no longer the king. And so as I put it here, David realized he was manipulated. He was outmaneuvered. He was taken by surprise. He was seemingly forsaken. He has to flee to the wilderness at a moment's notice. He is mocked by a person out there uh, from the former administration. And he is shamed. He's lost almost everything. And he is internally unraveling by his own flesh and blood. My own kid is doing this to me. The agony of defeat you might put that in that picture in the Olympics, you know, when they had the, the skier coming down and he falls off and he bangs into stuff and it's like the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Well, David 
is in the agony of defeat. Where's God? I don't know about you. Who are you relating to so far? Are you like Amnon, can't control your desires? Are you like Absalom, that you want to get revenge? You want to get your agenda? You're going to take down anybody in your way? Are you poor, like poor Tamar? You're just a victim? Are you like David? Because you didn't stay on top of things, now you're, you've lost it all. You've got shame from everywhere. If you look at the text, there was this one guy from King Saul's administration that's still alive. And he starts coming out there and he's using the F word and the D word and the S word. And I don't know what those are. But he used all these cursing languages. And he says, David, you're a jerk. And of course, the little small tag, ragtag group of people that, that es escaped with David out of Jerusalem, they were like, David, give the word and we'll kill this guy. We'll slice his throat. And David is there, guys, I think I deserve this. There's a sense in which he's appreciating how bad it is. The narrative has changed so much. David is no longer in control of the kingdom. He's being forced here, forced there, forced there. He doesn't have a lot of time to plan. And, and when he's leaving the town, and this is where I have to tell you the little of the story. Before he leaves Jerusalem, he leaves 10 people, 10 of the ladies there to take care of the palace. And then as he's leaving, he says, oh, don't bring the Ark of the Covenant with me. He said, that would not be a good thing. Let's leave that back there in the temple area. So he sends the two, the two uh, spiritual leader guys, the church, the clergy people, sends them back with the Ark of the Covenant, and he says, by God's grace, I'll come back. And then he ends up looking at, at, at Hushai, the, the counselor that had been his friend, who is ragtag. I mean, he's, his clothes are ripped up. He's, he's just gotten out of there. He knows that things are bad. And he looks at Hushai, and he says, hey, why don't you stay here? I'm going to go. He says, if you'll stay here, what my prayer request to God is, is that your counsel will undo the good counsel of Ahithophel. And David ends up leaving, and he's taking just a few things with him. You know, he doesn't have a big entourage. He's just escaping. And that's the agony of deceit, uh, of defeat. Now, I want you to know that that humiliation that comes is pitiful, and it's out of his control. But the third point, which is where I'd like to dwell is the agents of change. The agents of change. The narrative of God's sovereignty ends up coming out. But before you see God's sovereignty, you see three narratives that are being advanced. The third one is God. But the first one is the narrative of kings. The second is the narrative of counselors. When you look at the narrative of kings, you have a competing. You have Absalom and you have David. You have two guys that are being in the role of king. And both of those guys are trying to control the narrative. Secondly, you find two counselors. They're both serving, in this particular case, Absalom. At least it looks like they are. The one is Ahithophel and the other is Hushai. And both of those guys are trying to control the narrative. They're trying to paint the picture. And so when you realize that, we have these... these and then God is the third one that you find at the end of verse 14. God has his agenda too. So there's three agents of change. But most of us only see the two. The agents first I want to look at is the king's. When you look at these two agents of kings who are controlling the narrative, who is their audience? Who's the audience listening to King David? Or who is the audience listening to King Absalom? 
Well, when you think through it a little bit, the audience of the kings are the people, the ones who follow them. And it's really interesting that when you listen to Ahithophel, he says, look, the people that are going to follow you, Absalom, they're going to just be like a bride coming home for the honeymoon. They're going to love on you. They're going to submit to your every wish. The only thing you need to do is you need to take care of the distractions so they can be looking full into your beautiful eyes. Isn't it interesting? The people are likened just to a bride coming home to the husband. It's the, the kings. Now, David's audience used to have, you know, if you remember back when David killed Goliath, you know, the, the songs were going around, David had killed his, uh, Saul had killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. The people used to admire this ruddy man, this guy who, who was, who was a, a neat character. David had 600 mighty men that followed him around. David was not afraid of, of much. I mean, it was pretty fascinating how you see David's lifetime. And now as he's, as he's been king for a while, who's listening to the king? Apparently, the people aren't. The people's hearts have already been turned towards Absalom. And so who's controlling the strings? David is realizing that he's not been very efficient at being able to communicate with his people. And so the kings, they were, the, Absalom was trying to replace his dad. He was, um, he was saying his dad wasn't good enough. And so he was, his plan was to win back the favor. He could use his charm and his good looks, his appearance and his activity. He would be out there at the gate. He would call people up if they had phones or cell phones. He would constantly be in touch. You know, he'd send you a text message all the time and he'd give you all these favorable little speeches. He would have said everything to make you feel like Absalom loves you. Absalom loves you. Absalom can solve your problems. And the people liked it. They said, well, we haven't talked to King David for a while. So they ended up falling in line with him. And so his agenda was that he came up with the final plan that he said, at the right moment in time, when David's been lulled to sleep, then I'm going to blow the trumpets and, and all of our spies that are all around the land are going to hear about this. Uh, it's almost like lighting those torches in the Lord of the Rings where all the mountains turn on with lights. They're going to let everybody know that there's a new king. It's the one that was in line to be the king, and he's replacing David. Long live King Absalom! Wow. He grabbed the narrative really well. He really did. But to combat this, David was trying to get the narrative back. David learns the truth. He had informants that told him about it, even though it was a little late. David decides that instead of standing and standing there like the Alamo, he's going to retreat. He abandons the palace and, and, and he leaves a few people there to try to hold the fort. David counsels with Hushai before he leaves and he says, man, I don't have control of much. In fact, I don't have any control. He says, why don't you stay here? And just like you were faithful to me, why don't you act like you'll be faithful to him? And we'll see if the Lord will use this. David had a plan in his despair. He leaves only, uh, he, he leaves really quickly. And in his, in his despair, he endured all that cursing. And he is living as a refugee, abandoned. But the counsel of Hithophel and the counsel of Hushai are in competition. You can see both of these guys are smart characters. And both of them have an audience of the king. The same guy is listening to the same, and that's why you can picture Ahithophel on one hand and you can picture Hushai on the other, and they're trying to pull the strings. The irony is Ahithophel told the truth. 
Ahithophel gave the counsel for victory. Hushai gave the counsel for vanity. It's a scary thing. If you're Absalom, he's been a smart guy up to this point. All of his conspiracy has come to pass. And now that he's got the crown on his head and he's got the favor of the people, something happens. He turns into a stupid person. Instead of going after his enemy to get the victory, like Ahithophel said to do, just go after him. Get it done. Take 12,000 people. We'll finish it tonight. We'll make a, I called it a, a, a swift and surgical incision. We'll just go after the one guy. And we take him down, everything, everybody else will just come back to you, Absalom. They will. And you know what? He was telling the truth. Now, on the other hand, you had Hushai. Hushai is a trusted counselor to David, and he gets up there, and his plan is for vanity. And he says, time out. He says, well, that, that plan for victory, don't do that. He says, the plan for vanity is much better. He says, what I would like you to do is to don't rush out and do this. He says, you need to puff yourself up. You need to have people from all the tribes to show up at the same time. And if you'll just bring them down together, then you won't have to have some of them picked off here and some of them picked off here. He says, you come with a show of force and all the people be rallied around you. And when you find out where King David is with his tiny little group, you will swarm them. And if they retreat into some kind of little uh, refugee or little city with walls, he says, our ropes will just pull down those walls and we will leave nothing left. Now, if you're Absalom, hmm, I like that. I like it when everybody is going to give me praise. And I'll go out there with them and they'll see that I'm, 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 a, I'm a great guy. Almost like he has to prove it to them. That was the two councils that were being pulling the strings and poor Absalom fell prey. He listened to his own heart and listened to the deception of vanity. The last thing I'll finish up before we come to the Lord's table is God. God has a narrative that the scripture holds for God's people. We are the audience. Everybody that gets the scripture gets to know this. And the reason I know this is because the scripture was recorded for our edification. Every word from God is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the men and women of God might be complete, thoroughly furnished in all good works. If you have chapter 17, verse 14, you're going to see there that Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archaic, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And this is where you have to get it. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the one so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. When I look, listen to this, God had a divine plan. And many of us wouldn't like God's plan. Did you hear what the plan was? The author of scripture, the historian here, tells us that God had a plan, not for good, but for bad, for Absalom. Pastor, Let's erase that verse. Our God is a loving God. He loves everybody. Everybody's going to get to heaven. Even Judas. We just talked about that in Sunday school. Well, all that's a, a farce. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are on that path. Okay, I want you to know without a doubt that sinners are going to be judged for their sin because God can by no means clear the guilty. But when you look at this text, the author, the historian tells us that God had the fingers above. And that God was the one who had an agenda. And that God had an agenda to bring judgment, punishment, to bring correction, 
on Absalom. Absalom was not going to get away with it. Absalom was not going to reroute God's plan. Absalom had, in his own head, had come up with a better plan than God. God had a plan that he was going to put somebody on the throne of David. And, and Absalom said, hey, I am going to be the one that replaces David. And God says, uh-uh-uh. Many of us don't live like that in 2022. We don't realize that God has an agenda that he's working out. And if you look around, everybody's coming up with alternatives. Everyone seems to say, I've got something better than what God has. Whether it's for your sexual liberty, or whether it's the way you want to spend your money, or whether you ever want to have a household or not. You know, nobody has to get married anymore. And, and kids don't have to be respectful to their parents. In fact, they don't even have to tell their parents what they're doing. They can choose their own identity if they want. They can do whatever. And they never have to leave if they don't have to leave. Government will help them so that they're not dependent on those mean people. When you think about all of these agendas that are being advanced, I want you to know that God is not sitting back there saying, huh, I didn't know that. Hmm, really? No, no, if you look at Psalm 2, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. He'll bring them into derision. He is that one who is able to control the narrative because this is his story. That's what history is. Now, if you look at how it unfolds, and this is where I'll bring it to the table, he had a plan to bring punishment on one of David's sons. And I said, that's hard for us to digest. It is. And David, when he realized this, when David was getting the upper hand and, and, and when, when the, the council of Ahithophel was defeated, David ends up telling Joab, and he says, don't hurt my boy, don't hurt Absalom, don't give him what he deserves, don't mistreat him, don't, don't give him more grace, give him more grace. Everybody's looking at David and saying, you need to see a shrink. You must be mental. How can you love this guy who has just demolished your title, your character, your, 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 your whole thing? He's even had sex with your concubines. How can you, how can you, you know what I mean. God's will was even harsher than David's. But the plan is interesting. That when you look at that verse, at the end of verse 14, 17, 14. For the Lord God had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, and so the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This is where I want you to get it. I never saw it before till I studied this text. Absalom was going to suffer. The son of David was not going to sit on the throne of David because he was not worthy. But there was another son of David who was worthy. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, it's there all along. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his, offering, uh, his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I don't know if you're following along. This is Isaiah 53, where it talks about Jesus being the suffering God who was going to be like a lamb taken before the shearers. 
he wouldn't open his mouth. He would be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace would be laid upon him. And it was the will of God to crush him. You see, Absalom, even though he looked good, even though he was making people swoon over him, and he would have given them great counsel, but he was a phony. There was one son of David who does love, one who does care about the compassions of your heart, the struggles, the one who can say it is well with your soul. It is Jesus Christ. And he was going to be the one that the Lord's will was going to crush. And when you look at this, it looks like a devastating situation. But I can tell you that Absalom could never supplant the godly line, the control of the narrative that God had ordained. That as Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world, there would be the Lamb of God who would come and be slain. He was going to be the son of David, and he was going to come through the lineage of Solomon, not Absalom. We come to the table today, and I want you to know that Jesus was not as pretty as Absalom. And he may not have been as tall, and he may not have been able to go around with some of the boastfulness that Absalom did that made people swoon over him. But Jesus came into this world to conquer a greater enemy than his dad. He submitted to his father's wrath. For the wrath of the Father was poured out on him. And that's why from the cross he said, it's finished. His was following the counsel of victory to conquer the condemnation that is due to us for sin. As we come to the Lord's table for communion, I want you to know that this is for believers only. And if the elders would come and gather, I want to lead us in prayer. I want to encourage us to come to the Lord's table not with our own agendas, but with his, not creating our alternatives, not trying to get our sexual satisfaction, not trying to get revenge against people who have done us wrong, not trying to just control the circumstance, but to realize that God is controlling the narrative that in the fullness of time he would send his son, made of a woman made under the law, the son of David, who would take the curse of law. If the elders would come forward right now, I want to lead us in prayer and set apart these elements. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we've gathered in this place today, we've had the Word of God broken before us. And we've realized that the narrative has been uh, being yanked around from this person to that. Whether they're kings or counselors, all kinds of people are always being pulled this way or this way. And sometimes they speak the truth and sometimes they speak deception. But they always speak with an agenda. Lord, when we realize your agenda, we know that there was a son of David that had to take his throne. And the only way he would be crowned king of kings and lord of lords, if he would conquer death, that he would conquer what his name was given to him in, in, in Matthew. He will save his people from the consequences of their sin. Lord, his name will be called Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. Lord, as we come into this church today, we realize that we've come because Jesus has paid it all. We've come and we have boldness to come to the Father through him. We pray through Jesus' name. There's no other name given among men whereby we can be saved. Lord, we know that we have a risen Savior who's in the world today. And we do not have to 
wonder where he is or if he's asleep or if he's on vacation. Lord, we have a living God. Lord, many of us still have doubts. Many of us still struggle. Many of us are so tempted to follow some other agenda. We're, we're bombarded with voices all the time, whether podcasts from the TV or even from other church leaders, even from officials, even from our friends, even from our parents, even from our children. We are badgered and pressured on every side. Oh, Lord, but I pray that we would hear the voice of our Savior. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Cut those other strings. I will give you rest. This sweet communion that the Lord has prepared for us, it is for Christians. And so, Lord, as I go to pray, I pray that we might remember that this is a beautiful gift that you've given to us. Lord, our prayer is that you would forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, our prayer is that we would long to spend more time with you and to look more full in your wonderful face. Lord, our prayer is that we would speak the words of truth, that we would have the love of God demonstrated in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would not be guilty as David of, of enabling people through false grace but that we would enable people to come to you. When they come to you, they'll realize that your burden is not heavy. It is light. Lord, set apart these elements in this sweet communion so that we might be nourished in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Luke chapter 22. Judas had just gone up there and betrayed him, as we learned about in Sunday school today from John 13. He broke the bread and he said, I delight to do this so that you can understand what I'll be doing in a matter of 24 hours. He was going to be the Lamb of God broken on Calvary's cross. The Isaiah 53 was coming to pass. And as the disciples were there looking at the bread, they could see that Jesus was speaking of himself. As the cup, as, and, and then as the bread comes around, it is our custom here is for us individually to partake. Do not partake if you're not a Christian. If you're not a believer, you eat and drink damnation to yourself, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30 and 31. You don't want to do that. I want to speak as somebody that's speaking the truth in love. But I do want you to know that if you are a believer, this is the time to draw near to him. And if the Holy Spirit reminds you that you have ought against your brother, that you are struggling to be able to commune with God because you're so filled with all these other things, all these other agendas, like Absalom with sex, or like Absalom with, with, with revenge or, or Amnon with sex. Whatever it is that's pulling you in other directions, leave those away. Look full in his wonderful face. As the bread comes around, we want to encourage you to partake of it on your own in your timetable as the music is playing. This is between you and the Lord. Nobody else can do it for you. Let us receive the bread.
It's so beautiful to realize that the cup that we get to pass and we get to participate in is not the cup of wrath. It is not the cup of pain and suffering. It is the cup of communion, of sweet communion. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, after he had shared about his body that would be broken, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. You notice the language of the covenant reminding us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, no remission of sin. And Jesus was telling us, my life is going to be given for you. And as we drink of this cup, we show our connectionalism to Christ. For he is the head and we are the body and the blood goes through us. And that's why his agenda is ours, because he is the head. As you receive the cup, please hold it so we may partake together, demonstrating our connectionalism. We are the body of Christ. I will not boast in anything. No gift, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer unless I know.
this has been a Be Still Sunday. Sometimes it hurts to be still. My prayer is that you would realize that God's agenda is going to come to pass. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on this earth. That's what it's all about. No matter what you're going through, the cup that he bids you to drink from is not a cup, cup of bitterness and rage and revenge. On this Valentine's weekend, we know what love really is. This is a cup of love. And Jesus said, you drink of it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sweet communion. We thank you that you loved us so much that while we were yet dead in sins and trespasses, while we were just like David, being looking like we've been abandoned and forsaken and we don't have our act together, you brought things to pass. You were able to, to shape things, to put us into the right place, as it says there in Esther, for such a time as this. We thank you, O Lord, that as we have communion with you, that our faith is strengthened, that we realize that this is not merely religion. This is not simply going through the motions. It's not just standing up, sitting down, and singing a few songs. It is having a relationship with our Creator, one that's not built on fear that you're going to crush us. You already did that to Jesus for us. Now our relationship with you as, is as children. We thank you that you'd bid us to come to this table that you prepared for us. Strengthen us for the journey ahead and help us to have love abound. Love abounding not only to, to those within our own families, but within the family of God. And I pray that the world will know we're Christians because of that love. In Jesus' name I give thanks. Please stand to your feet and let's conclude with that closing hymn that all of you know from uh, many years ago, a cherished one. Holy, holy, holy is our God. Holy, 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 Lord God.
that is printed for us in the in the uh, on the back page, where it says, "The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make His face to shine upon you." And be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. And all of God's people say, Amen and Hallelujah and Jesus is Lord.